0: Well, you mean Cypress Corners. Cypress Corners? Yes, Cypress Corners.
1: Ethnic Agrarian Community, Biosphere AG3 of Earthship Ark.
0: Earthship Ark? Examine tray before you, containing numbered playback cylinders. Select cylinder 4-2. Place it in slot for brief history. You explain it, I can't. Now you know why I ripped those earphones off. Hi again, everybody. It's time for another episode of the I-Double-M-P podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And we're we're heading for the end of the year now. A few days away. We're going to say farewell to 2020. And it's also time to wrap Um, up
1: our... Oh, did I say 2020? You did. (laughs) You know what? We can even just leave this section in right here because you know what? That kind of feels right.
0: We're in the 24th month of 2020 and we're about to finally say goodbye to it and say hello to 2022. So uh, we're going to be also wrapping up our holiday in space.
1: Ah, yes. And It is cold and remarkably festive here in (laughs) space.
0: And for our final podcast of the year... The end of our holiday in space, we're going to be talking about Cure DeLay on a dangerous spaceship. Oh, really? Yes.
1: Is he going to wander around uh, white-themed hallways? Of course, of course. It's Um, the future. Is he going to get in and out of spacesuits more than one time?
0: I guess. Surprisingly,
1: yeah. Is is his fate at the very end of whatever this is going to be completely unknown and imperceptible by any person, man, or beast? Probably.
0: Okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm game. What is this? <laughs> we are not talking about 2001 again. We are talking about The Star
1: Lost. I did not even know this existed tangentially. Those are the most fun
0: things to introduce you to. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> the Star Lost is a, a Canadian-produced television series was aired on Canadian television and syndicated to American television in 1973. So this was on the air a year before I saw 2001.
1: Huh. That kind of timing makes sense for some of the visual elements and some of the stylistic things, but also...
0: Hmm. And it is a... what now seems like a classic setup in that it's a a generation ship that is lost it's a ship that was sent out to preserve humanity escaping from the dying earth i don't think we ever learned exactly why the earth was
1: dying well well some fools decided to use the moon to store all their radioactive waste and then the (laughs) radioactive waste exploded and that did some damage right
0: that must be it (laughs) Yeah, there are things about this that make it seem like a Jerry Anderson production. This feels so much like a Jerry Anderson production, but but it's not. It's it's um, exec. One of its exec producers is Douglas Trumbull, who did the uh, who did the special effects, the visual effects for two thousand one and for Close Encounters of the Third Kind later in the seventies, and directed a movie called Silent Running to which this owes at least a little bit. Okay. But this was written by Harlan Ellison, wasn't it? This was yeah, he's listed or it's this has a weird history this series. Okay. The the producers approached Harlan Ellison to help them create a TV series and he did. He created the concept, wrote out I presume the story bible. Um I believe he, he was writing several of the episodes, and before anything aired, I don't know how far they got into the production, but there was a big split. Now, color me shocked that Harlan Ellison had a, a, a vehement difference of opinion with anybody. He's famously known for vehement differences of opinion, violent and otherwise. Um, but... He split from it and took his name off it. They still used one of his, like, registered names, probably so that he would still get paid. So the series creator credit goes to Cordwainer Bird on screen. But that's Harlan Ellison. Okay. <laughs> and Harlan Ellison, of course, a you know, multiple award-winning science fiction author, wrote a really beloved episode of a TV series that was on some years before this one. Okay. He's got some cred, Ben. And also Ben Bova, another well-known science fiction author, was the the science consultant on The Star Lost. And I gather he didn't have a great experience either, because he later on wrote some stuff about, I think it was called The Star-Crossed, about being a frustrated scientific consultant on a show that wasn't really using your scientific consultancy very well. (laughs) Oh, that's pretty good. And... I mentioned, you know, this is a generation ship. It's, the idea in the Star Lost is there's this ship that's gone out to preserve humanity, but it's separated different groups of people, presumably for different cultures and such, in these sealed biodomes. And they're separated from one another. They were going to live out generations of these cultures in these ships before, the, in these domes before they got to their, their destination to a planet they could resettle and uh, it's the trip has been going on even longer than it was planned to it's because it's been off course for about 400 years and we learn in the first episode that the the, the command crew is all dead and the ship is on a collision course with a star so it's not going to last more than another generation before it's destroyed
1: anyway it kind of it kind of sets up the the largest locked room mystery possible, where right. it's like everyone like in these locked rooms where all of the command people were, and everyone else is locked in all of their other individual domes. Something somehow killed the crew, <laughs> and there's some element of like we've got to figure this out to it.
0: Would- well, yeah, well, they. They suggest at various points that it was some kind of an equipment failure or nuclear reactor failure, and there that of course has led to various mutations when it's convenient for the plot but but yeah, there's no clear explanation as to why the crew is all dead, and the computer system, which is available for um uh for information and reference and is very picky about language and is almost as useless as Siri, <laughs> uh, is, is, is faulty and has gaps in what it has, what, it, what, what kind of record tapes it's got.
1: Yeah, Siri at least doesn't restart if you, put, if you take your hand off of the chair it's attached to. <laughs> <sighs> so that's kind of the, the setup
0: of, of what's happening. But our story is following three young people who must save the Starlost. Aha! Uh-huh. So we've got Keir DeLay as Devon, Gay Rowan as Rachel, and Robin Ward as Garth. Oh, also, William Osler as the, the, the voice of the host computer. And also, conveniently, the opening narration explaining the, the setup that I just explained. And our three young people are from a particular biodome, which is essentially the home of the space Amish. (sighs) They were described later on at some point as like a simple Midwestern community, but we're talking really simple. We're talking
1: talking space Amish. We're talking space Amish. There's no other way to describe this. It's, you know, Garth actually sounds like... There, there's something about like I'm the blacksmith of the town. I'm here <laughs> to do my thing. Why? Yes, I get my metal by peeling it off the walls. We don't question it. It's like, uh, uh, okay,
0: yeah. There's it's it's this agrarian community, but the edges of this 50 square mile circle are you know extruded aluminum or titanium or whatever it's made of, and half of their dwellings seem to be. Built out of these advanced materials, and no one reacts to that. It's just the way things are. Which is just an interesting setup to start. And the leadership of this community—they are the ones who can speak with the, the the computer voice. I forget what they even call it. I don't. Uh, think the they voice call of it. the creator. The voice of the creator. That was it. They didn't come out and say God, but the voice of the creator. And. And again, that's just as part of their culture. And we then learn that the person in charge has been making up what he wants the creator to be saying and learned how to make his voice sound like the creator's voice. But thinking about it, I kind of get the impression that the people in these domes, they weren't like tricked into getting in there and didn't know or were not supposed to know that they were in a spaceship. I think they they were and they were knew that they were part of this plan to save humanity. They just kind of forgot and lost track. Now that they're they've been here four hundred years longer than expected, and so many generations have lived and died here.
1: This yeah, this isn't a deception. It's just a game of telephone about the mission over time, right? And that's why our three main heroes can be weirdly quick about certain things but weirdly slow about other things and it, it allows for some flexibility in the plot because one of the main core things is the fact that our, our lead hero is like absolutely rejecting everything and why are we not trying to leave out the big door well he's, of- he's got a classic motivation for he that does. too
0: Rachel is betrothed by the leaders to Garth Yet Rachel and Devon are in love, and Garth and Devon have been best friends forever,
1: apparently. Until, until this Rachel thing became a problem. Right, yeah, that, that did become a problem.
0: But that leads to Devon talking with the weird old guy on the edge of town, who happens to hang out near the big slab of metal saying, Beyond is death. And it turns out it's a door to which the weird old guy has a key. Oh, yeah. So, Devin gets out. He learns what, where they really are and what's really happening. And, of course, when he comes
1: back, they just want to stone him to death. Because it's what you do. It's what you do. And this leads to him and Rachel running away and Garth running after them with a crossbow. <laughs> and
0: yeah. And that's the point at which they finally find the bridge and learn, yes, not only is the computer not terribly helpful, but everybody who's supposed to be steering this thing is gone. And kind of cool shots of skeletons in spacesuits sort of
1: thing. Yeah, they use those
0: in the opening very clearly first. But I'm not too surprised that the bridge crew didn't survive, because they had a really questionable security system. To get onto the bridge crew after being, like, directed there by the computer, to get onto the bridge, uh... uh chamber i mean they have to go through this some kind of security detection device that freezes them at a bunch of wavy animated lines for a moment devon gets stopped gets scanned goes through rachel gets stopped gets scanned goes through garth gets stopped gets scanned goes through even though he's holding a giant aluminum crossbow. Yes. <laughs> it wouldn't be that tough to get in there and play havoc with the bridge crew if you wanted to.
1: I, absolutely. I, I'm absolutely. I'm flabbergasted by that. <laughs> I guess they weren't
0: really dis- planning to have to secure themselves against primitive weapons, but still. Like,
1: wh- what? A crossbow is still dangerous, yes. bridge crew. Did did someone set this up to be able to, like, scan for what type of deck they were breaking to Magic the Gathering Commander Knight instead? Why is it not doing anything? (laughs) And you
0: can see what kind of setup this is for a TV series. In some ways, it's a brilliant setup for a TV series. Because they learn that they have to get to the, like, secondary bridge, which is somewhere on the other side of the spaceship that is 200 miles long and 50 miles wide. And that means they just have to wander through this place filled with these biodomes with all these different cultures.
1: It's perfectly set up for episodic television. Oh, yeah. It's, it's brilliant. You can return to a place if you need a story. You can go to someplace new. You can have s- episodes set in domes. You can have episodes set entirely in the hallways and administrative rooms.
0: And we actually wound up, for various reasons, watching more of the latter than of the, the episodes where they meet people in other biodomes. Yeah. But suffice it to say that when they do meet people from other biodomes, they're almost, they, well not almost, I, I don't know if there are any exceptions. They are all a dystopia of some kind. Something has gone tar- terribly wrong. Some horrible person has assumed leadership and is destroying what's left of this little pocket of civilization in their dome or some strange cult has become the dominant social and religious force within this biodome. And that has twisted how they treat outsiders or one another. It's it's all various flavors of dystopia.
1: Oh yeah. I, uh, it's, it's a brilliant setup and the character archetypes are very well designed. You've got your, your energetic hero who, who's got this, co- this moral code to him who's trying to do a thing. You've got a very curious character in Rachel who is – she's the one to ask a question. She's actually kind of the quickest thinking of the group in many ways. And you've got best guy Garth who's just – he sees the problem and very reasonably says, nope, nope. <laughs> and tries to leave, and usually that's when you learn you're stuck, or there's a reason we have to stay, or someone else gets to pipe up. But he actually drives the plot by trying to keep going. You're right. More we've than got, anything else. We've
0: got the seeker, we've got the listener and thinker, and we've got the more conservative, keep us safe, shouldn't we go
1: home now? Yeah. And it really works. It's a great set of mentalities. You get these strong-headed person- with their scientific kind of advisor and their their slightly bemoaning other advisor kind that of- counterpoint each other, and they all work together as a trio to face down challenges, yeah, and they maybe yeah. have other characters around them. But it's it's a dynamic that fits.
0: It does fit. I can see how that would work for a TV series. I could see that working for a TV series that would last more than 16 episodes. Like exactly. This yeah, it only lasted 16 episodes. I don't know if they were all broadcast in the U.S., but, uh, but they are available out there now. You can find them.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're available. And it's really... Hmm. This show looks okay, even in bad transfer. And it was supposed to look better, but it looks okay for what it is.
0: It was. This is a show that was made with tremendous ambition. You can tell that from the people they got involved. They got Douglas Trumbull and Kier DeLay from 2001. They got... Harlan Ellison and Ben Bova they developed a special filming technique called magic cam which was essentially a if if I understand it correctly it was a real time matting composite system where you would track camera movements in a miniature set and match them to camera movements with your live actors on front of a blue screen and you'd be able to easily and quickly and cheaply mat your actors into these blue screen sets.
1: Yeah, real, real-time scale tracking and, mat- and uh, matting.
0: And that didn't really work. No. So they had to fall back to more basic blue screen techniques, which made everything very static. They, they didn't build gigantic sets for each one of these biodomes or other or, or places where the uh, the actors or the characters had to be. So... The long shots where you're seeing the actors in a strange environment. They're very static. They're very obviously
1: screened in. It does make a lot of the buildings and hallways they go through feel claustrophobic. Because it's filmed on a very tiny set, and they've crammed in repeated pieces of wall and texture they can use. And it means there's something kind of submarine-like about all these administrative buildings, except you'll get into, like, the command room, and it's big and open, and that's surprising. But you get into, like, the medical bay, and it's this, like, three-person, shoulder-to-shoulder-wide corridor and that kind of adds to this in some ways. Oh, that's a
0: good point. The, those, those constraints made them focus on these tight shots. Yeah. And, and over, overload it with those tight shots that give it that claustrophobic feel.
1: Yeah, I like that. It, it could have, if they'd intended it, they could have used that well. Instead, it's true about this show, but not the focus. <laughs> yeah. The
0: way they use these blue screen effects... It reminded me quite a bit of Land of the Lost. It does. It has that kind of feel to it. Where they did that for the the big uh, prehistoric vistas, you would have Marshall, Will, and Holly screened in as the little characters in the foreground. We get some of that. And because I grew up with that kind of TV, including this, that just is a style in my mind. And it says, oh, this is sci-fi and fantasy television looks like this so it it triggers that receptiveness
1: it reminds me of the fmv point and click adventure games that i love oh it's it reminds me of the things you see from cyan with mist and ribbon and other series or the various other things that are doing similar where we are filming a person on a blue screen or a green screen so that we can then add them into this earlier developed cgi environment we've built so we can add a character into this this thing you'll wander around in later and that meant that i had my own connection which made me not turn away at this visual style but it says (laughs) something that both of us have something it it reminded us of and i don't know if that's good because it means that this is generally relatable even if we didn't have the same one or if it just means the two of us have weird enough sets of media things, this won't be disconcerting to watch in terms of severe green screen, blue screen
0: shenanigans. One thing that does make this hard to watch now is the fact that they, they put a very, very little amount of story into a very long period of time for most of these episodes, it seems to me. You could get a probably a pretty tight half-hour TV episode – with what they use to fill
1: an hour-long TV episode. Absolutely, except for one or two examples where they somehow pack double the amount of episode into the size they put in because they just move so quickly. When things happen, things happen. And then there's a whole lot of nothing happening in between. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If they trimmed out the nothing, they'd have a really tight
0: yeah, story. Are there point. any that you're thinking of that really you thought the pace was we good?
1: Watched a t- we watched a, a two episode, like, connected
0: pair. Oh, right. And this was an example of how they decided that this terrific premise we just described wasn't enough, so they had to bring in outside characters from, uh, from elsewhere.
1: And so, like, after doing an entire series of, you know, the adventure around stories, they've got one episode where suddenly there's an a crash and there's a breach in one of the rooms and there is a ship that's arrived and in it is oro the alien <laughs> who actually is like important it seems
0: oro the alien played by walter koenig another connection to land of the lost he wrote an episode of Land of the Lost. Oh, he did. Yeah. yeah. And later on, he was in Babylon 5 for a season or so. And before this, like in the late 60s, he was in another TV series.
1: <sighs> oh, yeah. He was in... Moderation of language is essential in proximity of robot.
0: Sorry. Like I said, he was on some other TV series in the late 60s.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. Probably yeah, maybe absolutely. he's
0: best known for that. I think they also made some movies. Yeah. But he's in two episodes of uh, The Star Lost as Oro. He's an alien from the planet XR who crashed into the, the Earthship Ark on a, on a reconnaissance mission. Had to get back home. And then later he comes back because they've decided, oh, this Earthship Ark looks valuable. Let's bring it back to XR and who cares
1: about the people inside? <laughs> You salvaged how much of what from a single room to repair your spaceship? And this thing was how big? Get it. (laughs) So there's a lot of, like, interesting little hooks. This is almost a show made of nothing but story hooks. Because every single room is a new story hook. Every, Every piece of technology that they don't know because they grew up in Space Amish Dome. (laughs) is a a story hook and they're even throwing literal new story hooks through the walls (laughs) (laughs) literally you are right and so it's like there every episode is going to almost feel like a brand new thing and it's also going to be exactly the pacing you're getting from everything else (laughs) stretched out and also somehow cramped into a small room, and they just keep going.
0: and sometimes the writing seems to me like it was not very well thought through or was extremely rushed.: Yeah, like, it's, it, it feels dumbed down in some ways, and unnecessarily complicated sometimes. I mean, the, the, the second of the Oro episodes. Yeah, it ends with this competition between Devon and Oro as to who should be allowed to lead and who should be commanding the Earthship arc. And it is, it's is—it's literally debate team to the death.
1: Yeah, and, and, they, and they, they spring this on you nine minutes before the episode ends of, by the way, electrifying force fields that kill whoever loses the debate match. So, oh, what? So they're going to debate to
0: debate. They're going to be judged by the, the, the robot. Tau Zeta, who they happen to discover in this episode. And whoever loses dies, whoever wins gets to command (laughs) Earthship.
1: Okay. (laughs) I don't know what to think about this, because like, they had so much time they didn't use getting to this, like, let's let's literally have our moral quandary spelled out between the two of us. Then give it arbitrary values, and then point out the values are arbitrary, and everyone kind of leaves as enemies. This is, it's wild. Although, interestingly enough, that episode made me realize something I've been seeing throughout the rest of the series in the episodes we'd seen up to this point. Yeah? This show does have consistency. This show has a consistent evolution of our main characters, though. Which I didn't expect to see. Yeah, In a show that is so episodically jumping around, they leave in the first episode from their home, dressed in these plain, like, cotton sackcloth clothes that are stereotypical of where they are from. But as we watch, they learn the things throughout the ship, and they start getting more used to living on the ship instead of just in their environment and you watch as everything they're wearing gets fitted a little better as they start replacing their like tie-off leather belts with the strapped belt with velcro from the uniforms of the staff and crew you see them figuring out how to and then being rather swift at taking on and off hazmat suits and evac suits when they're going through areas that are dangerous. (laughs) You're literally getting to see these people learn how to survive in the ship and live on the ship. And there's something simultaneously really cool and compelling about that because it's subtle. There's also something that Thanks to the costuming and the way these people then are presenting themselves, feels a little bit like they walked into this target as customers and somehow have picked up a supervisor shift before they've left the building. Because they almost seem, they almost seem to be accruing authority at a rate that does not make sense, even for the, for the length of time of the episodes. But it's cool. And by the end, they're, like, replacing, like, oh, yeah, that's the shirt he was wearing. But he's wearing the shiny-sided pants of this other uniform that you saw. And it just doesn't – it doesn't get noted by any of the characters. But if you watch more than one in a row, you'll see them evolve. That's
0: a great example of where I think this show really was done thoughtfully with the resources they had and the limitations they had. There was some thought that went into that. And you're right, the, just by knowing things and by ass- declaring that they know things, the people they meet recognize some authority on their part more and more. It kind of makes me want to know a little bit more about the culture they came from. Because as we were saying, we don't think that at the beginning this society didn't know that they were on a spaceship, they just forgot. Are there aspects of their training to be in space that was preserved in this culture. I'm thinking about things like uh, Turn A Gundam. Oh, yes! Where there are these rituals that turn out to be rituals for the uh, to prepare someone to pilot a Gundam, but they're just kind of religious coming-of-age ceremonies by the time we get to the story in Turn A Gundam. I'm wondering if there's something about that that he- at least helped, helped them recognize a spacesuit when they came upon one or a computer disc or a computer tape, I should say, or something like that. Yeah.
1: If, if they saw a hazmat suit and their response was, Oh, priest robes. That's right. like, oh, okay, that's something. Yeah. The but, priest robes that are supposed to protect you
0: from the things beyond our world. Oh, that sounds like what we need. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's the exact sort of thing. Like it does feel like there's a piece missing of that sort of story element. And it makes me wonder, I would love to get a a glance at anything
0: else that Harlan Ellison and and maybe Ben Bova developed for this to see if there's more detail that's available.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because this is a show that's pulling off of a lot of stuff, so I almost don't want to lead into our final things, but there's a lot to talk in that already. (laughs) Well,
0: I, I can talk a little bit about other things I know this take some of its inspiration from yeah let's start with that we mentioned uh douglas trumbull having uh i believe he directed silent running and did the effects for it uh and silent running was about spaceships that were preserving specific botanical ecosystems mostly because the earth was dying and then there's a struggle over should they be kept or not um Kind of a one-note movie, but had a lot of really great and very influential bits of science fiction filmmaking that we see in Star Wars and a lot of other things after that. The earliest novel that I know of that depicted this kind of generation ship is Robert Heinlein's Orphans of the Sky. Okay. Which is specifically about a generation ship where something goes terribly wrong and... Generations live and die inside the spaceship, not knowing they're on a spaceship, changing because of, of mutations due to radio, radio, radiation leaks. Um, it's kind of dated now, of course, but it's, it's still an inter- interesting story. And for as far as I know, it's the earliest story for this kind of setting. But mm. uh, just putting together sociology and physics, it's not hard to get to this idea. If you're saying, if we want to go somewhere else, it's probably going to take a long, long time.
1: Yeah, and the idea of, like, if you're going to try to preserve things, it's easier to preserve a bunch of little tiny ecosystems with people there to maintain each of them than try to preserve a complete unified biosphere at once. There's something to be said, because, that means it's, it's points of failure issue. Too. Right, If yeah. one thing goes wrong, it can't take everything else with it. So dome up each little section on its own.
0: Mm-hmm. So maybe it is time to uh to go into our final questions. Okay. Well, it's a TV series binge or no binge?
1: No binge. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Don't uh, binge this. It's- if you want this, if you if if this sounds cool, I'm sorry. Go watch Stargate. Individual oh. little planets of a theme, separated. When I first saw the first episode, there's a line from an episode of Stargate Atlantis. It's radioactive, and we're in Amish land. <laughs> it went through my head, and I realized right there, oh, wow, it's Stargate, but all the planets are on the same ship. And if you want, <laughs> our ship is out of control. Well, I'm, I can't believe I'm suggesting Um yeah, <laughs> watch. I I can't believe I'm suggesting anybody go watch Stargate Universe, but they also tried yes. doing this. It's like this is like
0: Stargate, but the stargates are just Disney World utilitors.
1: Yes, that's really <laughs> accurate. So I'm like, there's this is the inspirations that drew this kind of have done been done elsewhere. So you don't need to binge this one, right?
0: And it's it's not really very watchable,
1: no, because
0: of its pacing, because of the you know the acting is not I'm sure this is not the best work of any of these actors it It's one thing to create art with constraints because constraints constraints can be powerful and they can inspire great art. It's another thing when the constraints just keep preventing you from what you're doing what you were trying to do, and that's the impression I get here is that they had grand ideas and they never quite came to terms with the fact that they couldn't execute those grand ideas. And their attempt to do so is not very watchable. Yeah,
1: the, in some ways, the, the bigger than what, it, than what it could imagine that made things like Doctor Who charming with this same kind of budget and constraint at times, just make this feel tinny.
0: Yeah, it is kind of 70s Doctor Who-ish in some ways, mm-hmm. but if they had thoughtfully scaled back their plans and used production techniques more like doctor who it might have turned out better
1: exactly although if you are going to binge it uh send me the uh the abridged edit you build where garth is the hero more because uh that that, that'd be kind of fun (laughs) garth
0: is a cool character garth is
1: fun there's one thing i noticed about his behavior in
0: this yes they, they meet a lot of people who actually know what they're doing and they're oh, scientists yeah. on the, the Ark and things. And in a couple of episodes, I noticed that Garth will kind of watch someone at a computer console pushing buttons. And then when the person steps away to, or turns their attention to something else, Garth will go over to the place where they were and start pushing buttons. Usually it's, it's the same buttons. Yeah, it's like, it's like he's a child watching what someone is doing and then trying to replicate it. And it's, it's both fascinating, it's adorable, it's, well, yeah, he's the blacksmith, he's going to be paying attention to the hardware and the way people interact with it. I don't know if it's just, it was not terribly well thought out blocking, or is it just supremely well thought out? directing and acting choices but i love those little bits i now i started watching for them as we watched this series
1: because oh garth is playing with another toy because he saw someone else do it there's something in my mind where i can just very clearly picture like garth and er, er, like all of them talking with someone and the person they're talking with like buying something from a vending machine you know put in three quarters hit this button this button and out pops my can of soda, and I keep talking while I open it up and drink it. And just the image in my head of the the person they're talking to doing that, and then Garth finding three quarters on the ground, putting them in, hitting the exact same buttons, getting the soda, being intrigued at seeing how it all works, popping up in the soda, trying a sip, And hating it because he doesn't like the flavor, (laughs) but he learned how to use a vending machine. It's absolutely the same sort of mimic reaction. And that's one of the subtle things that makes me want to have to say, like, I want to say it's good, but it's not worth it. And, you know, thinking
0: about that, just now putting that together with what we were saying before about maybe there was more preserved in their culture than we got to see about the technology, maybe it is the, the effect that... Their culture was one in which the machines we interact with are objects of ritual. So I need to learn the rituals for each of the machine. I've watched this zoologist perform this ritual on her computer console, so I'm going to go and learn it by replicating exactly what she did. Maybe that's part of their culture.
1: Yeah. They almost needed to D&D class the characters a little more. He's the blacksmith, (laughs) but if they'd given everyone a little bit more of a job title like they gave him made it a little bit more, like, I'm the this, I'm the that, give everyone a class thing, their party would feel more cohesive <laughs> as it's adventuring through this, this dungeon crawl of a spaceship.
0: So, we're saying, even though, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to show this to you, glad I got a chance to surprise you with this, I'm not going to recommend that anybody else spend their time watching it. Oh, yeah. But, uh, that does bring up that, that next question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace. What are you thinking on this one first? I <sighs> am i don't think I need revive, because I don't know what that would be other than, like, the children of Devin and Rachel wandering around. Or a, a sequel style revival. It's still a revival in our terms, because it's in the same continuity. Uh, or rather, a prequel. Excuse me, a prequel about the beginning of this project, like a, a caprica to this show's Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. That could be interesting. Like, I could good, be. let's plan an evacuation story. But I'd be more interested in a reboot, in taking all the promise that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast episode, and making a good episodic tv series of this sort but that said as i think you pointed out it's kind of been done in stargate in sliders in a bunch of other oh, tv yeah, this series sliders like every week we go to another civilization trying to find our goal and we get i mean it's You know, you could could say that Incredible Hulk is the same kind of thing. You wander from town to town, get mixed up in the locals' problems, and then you move on. I could see a good reboot of this. I'm just not sure
1: we need it. Yeah, I I can completely get you. But both of us seem to agree that this has promise. It does. And this is one of those instances where I'm excited because I get to spin this back on you. Because I knew nothing of this. I'd not heard of this at all but i know that you don't know about the reboot this got. This got a reboot? Absolutely because we both think it has promise, but there's another person who thinks who thought this premise had promise as well. Harlan Ellis.
0: Harlan Ellison made a
1: who took his original pilot script that had been cut down and trimmed down as the budget and the project kept getting more and more in trouble. <sighs> And he, chain- and he went to the original name that he'd written that pilot under, instead of the one it was filmed under, and made the series A Phoenix Without Ashes, published by IDW as a multi-part series. So this was a comic series? This got a comic series reboot off of the original pilot, I but, concept.
0: Because back when this was, was done, I think Ellison got a like, run a, a Yugo or a Nebula for the original pilot screenplay that he wrote, like for best original screenplay. Yeah. But I thought that was just kind of a, you know, pat on the back, nice job, too bad we never got to make this. They actually did a reboot they, based on his original concept as They actually did
1: a reboot, completely restarting it, oh, but wow. they did that story. And I I was excited when I realized you didn't know about that, because that means I get to send that to you now. Oh, please and do. And see what you think of it, because it's out there. This did get to keep going. That is wild. I know. It's rare that something that we're we're looking at actually has the, the steps you'd expect in that sense. It actually has an example of what we talk about. But this is one of them. We get to end the year with an actual reboot. An
0: actual reboot that, that is an attempt to captured the the original
1: vision exactly that is great (laughs) so i have to say reboot because it exists i if you're talking about the star lost i guess i say rest in peace but (laughs) the things that this can represent and was potentially it did go so i'm excited by that that's that's pretty (laughs) cool i i look forward to reading that and just to add icing on the cake the full set's coming to you already.
0: Oh, you're kidding. That's wild.
1: Yeah, I found it.
0: It's ordered. <laughs> Thank you so much. Certainly. <laughs> Happy holidays, Dad. Thank you. <laughs> so let's, let's think about this. If we've got this giant ship with these biodomes preserving different human subgroups or cultures, what Human culture, would you want to make sure is preserved in one of these
1: biodomes? Ooh. I'm just imagining a game shop. I'm just imagining them, like, <laughs> opening up the, the, the little uh, doors and finding, like... There's, there's, a ta- there's a long glass countertop table with, with a bunch of like rare individual cards. There's a bunch of board games on the opposite <laughs> wall. There's probably a section that's probably selling GameCubes, despite the fact that there's newer consoles out there. And there is even more foldable tables and chairs than you think needs to be in this place. But they're all going to be filled on tournament night. I'm just thinking of them walking into a card shop.
0: <laughs> oh, here's an idea. They get to a biodome. They, they go inside, and the culture inside seems to be even from an even earlier period in history than, say, Cypress Corners, where they came from. I mean, it's, it's pretty much medieval. But then they learn, no, this isn't a, some history project trying to preserve medieval human culture. This is trying to preserve Renaissance Fair culture. So all the residents of this dome, they spend their days... Practicing sword fighting and cooking turkey legs and juggling and all this stuff, and then at the end of the day, they put on modern clothes and go watch television and play D anD D or do whatever else they want. Oh, that would be really fun. <laughs> Just like. Oh, that's like reenactment of... as a culture needs to be preserved, so we're going to
1: reenact reenactment culture, including what they do when they're not reenacting. You want to find the, one of the fun parts, the weird things, is sh- seeing all the other domes they depicted in this show. That's like finding the Sardacar. Of this place because (laughs) these are the ones even if they're just practicing with foam practice weapons they all have sword training (laughs) if the if if the three of them needed to raid another dome the chances that that army would be their best bet are so high it's silly (laughs) we saw an episode where there was nothing but beekeepers that was a really weird episode
0: yeah, like they devoted an entire dome to the zoology, and it was this subset of entomology that dealt with bees. Like, do you really have that many domes?
1: I I I, I filled <laughs> in all of the really slow places with with that one clip that the internet loves.
0: <laughs> Special guest star Nicholas Cage. Special guest star Nicholas Cage. I guess it's oh no, not the bees. Anyway. So yeah, I think it is time to let the Earthship Ark continue on its journey. Hopefully not crash into any stars. Yeah, did they actually ever deal with that? I don't think so. I don't think that this ended in a very satisfying um, we know the series is wrapping up kind of way. I believe in the final episode uh, Devon is recruited to be a member of the inter Ark Police or something, so maybe they were setting it up so that Well, this didn't work. Maybe we can swing a spinoff. But no, I don't know whatever happens to the Earthship arc.
1: Ah, dang it. It just runs into sun.jpg and the (laughs) afterimage explosion file 2 occurs and everything's gone. Oh, no.
0: So that, I think, wraps it up for this. And uh, I think it also wraps it up for our holiday in space. But this was a fun month. It was a, quite a, a variety. Even the 2001 and 2010 were were so distinct. Those
1: were extremely different. I feel like we did get three different versions of sci-fi. We got the the looming dread sci-fi. We got a, a kind of political intrigue sci-fi. And we got a, let's be honest, cheesy TV sci-fi. <laughs> all in this. And they all still had that... You know, the terror of the depth of space, kind of feel, and I, I love that. I eat that sort of stuff up. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to have had this, and I'm happy to have extended the dark and cold of winter into the dark and cold of space. <laughs> so, oh, and you mentioned gaming when we were talking about a, the the game
0: shop dome. We can't let this go, let uh, Star Lost go by without mentioning Metamorphosis Alpha which is a, a TSR tabletop RPG from Ooh. the 70s. Essentially with this premise. You're on a giant spaceship and there are different settlements and lots of mutations thanks to something having gone wrong. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Great, again, for an episodic storytelling, an episodic uh, RPG campaign. Great idea. Brilliant. But we'll be back in, uh, in a couple of weeks next year with uh, more tales of media from the 20th century. Thank you very much for being with us all year. Thank you very much for being with us for now more than three years. Absolutely. And uh, we really appreciate your downloading. We really appreciate your letting your friends know about this or going on to to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review. We'd really appreciate that. That's the best way for other people to learn about the podcast.
1: And for the few of you who are out there supporting us on the Patreon and such – we're very grateful to your support as well and thank you for helping us keep this going. In the meantime, uh what dome can they find you in, dad? <laughs> oh, that
0: designation is by matthew porter, so you can find me at bymatthewporter.com. You can find me on Twitter as bymatthewporter and bymatthewporter .com. We'll have links to anywhere else you might be able to find me. Ian, where can people find you?
1: I can be found on Twitter as ItemCrafting, on Twitch as live, and at ItemCrafting.com.
0: And you can find the podcast on Twitter as IMMPCast, and you can find us online at IMMProject.com. That's where you'll find all of our past episodes and where you'll find links to our Patreon, to our shop, to our Discord, our contact page, and uh, anything else you might want to find out about us. And by all means, let us know. What did you think of the Star Lost? What kind of uh, culture would you like to see preserved in one of these biodomes? And uh, we'd love to hear what you think about it. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.